book of Isaiah. We're going to study 10 verses this morning in chapter 35. We had such an awesome prayer meeting Thursday night. The Lord was so present, and He really ministered to us and spoke to us through His Word. And I want to really, I, I want to say this as an encouragement more than anything, um, because if you're not attending prayer meeting on the first Thursday of every month, I want to really invite you to start coming. Um, the Lord is, is here. He's moving. It's an awesome service. Um, we just, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I don't know about you guys that were here Thursday. I think Thursday was a little different even. Um, the Lord just seemed to be moving in, in, in a unique way. So let's make that our strongest service each month, okay? The first Thursday, just go ahead and block it out on your calendar. First Thursday every month, let's gather, let's pray, let's worship. We had such a good study that the Lord gave us um, from the book of Psalms, chapter 46. And we studied about how to suppress stress. How to suppress stress. And if you have not had a chance to listen to the podcast uh, yet, I encourage you to do that in the next 24 hours. Because the Holy Spirit really gave us some, some unique insights into His Word um, and, and it was really exciting. It was fun to teach and fun to study. Um, and I think the Lord really spoke to us. But um, our focus on Thursday was kind of how easy it is to get down uh, and to get kind of worn out by all that life has, right? Uh, my son, Jacob, came home on Friday um, after finishing his first year at Wheaton, and he was so tired from finals week that um, even before we ate dinner Friday night, he fell asleep, slept like two hours. And I was jealous, to be honest with you. Some of you need a nap this morning, right? How many, how many say, I'm not ashamed to admit I need a nap? Yeah, it's like all of you. So I would appreciate if you don't do that while I speak, but if you do, please don't snore, but that's fine. Maybe your, maybe your weariness, maybe your exhaustion this morning is not so much physical, as it is emotional, or as it is maybe spiritual. You're dealing with a constant barrage of spiritual warfare, and maybe right now it's a little bit more ramped up than usual, and maybe your response to that hasn't been exactly spiritual, hasn't been godly. Maybe you've given in to sin and temptation, and you're not really standing for your conviction like you know you should, and you're not walking by the Holy Spirit. Or maybe there's personal crisis going on in your life. Pete and Denise dealt with that over the last four or five months. Others of you struggling with major decisions that you've got to make and you don't know what to do and you're, you're facing some tough realities and, and what's the answer to that? What do, we, what do we do? Or maybe you're just kind of discouraged. Maybe it's about the, the moral decline of the culture that we've talked about so many times or the political upheaval and unrest in our country that, that just seems to get worse every single day. And, and, and you're, just, you're just down. You're just not doing great. Now, in the midst of all this, we can get like David in some of the Psalms. And he gets very despondent and he wonders if the Lord is really near and if the Lord's really actually going to help. Like, he knows the Lord, he trusts the Lord, he believes that God is everything he says he will be, but, 
but the, the despondency becomes so strong that he starts to say, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? What, are, are you ever going to be here near me again? And, and we can get in that place where we start to wonder, I, I know it's going to turn out all right, but is it really going to turn out all right? Is, is it really, is it, is it going to get to the place where everything's okay? Doubt and discouragement can be very powerful, can't they? They can really start to, to grab us, and the enemy uses them as spiritual weapons against us because he's constantly trying to undermine our confidence in the faithfulness of the Lord. And when our situation doesn't seem necessarily promising and we allow worry and fear to kind of intercede in our thinking, we start to fall back into self-sufficiency. And that causes us to forget some of the things we sang about this morning. And the fact that God says, I'll never leave or forsake my people. And not only will I not abandon you, but I will restore you. I'll give you victory every single day. I'll, I'll, I'll pull you out of situations that seem devoid of any hope, devoid of any victory. Like you're, you're in a situation right now and you're just like, I can't see the end. Uh, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't have answers. I, I, I'm just stumped. And what's amazing about the grace of God is that he is so willing and so ready to help his people. He's never delayed. He never kind of puts us off. It's never, well, let's see how things play out. Let's see how you do. He's always ready, even when we've rebelled, even when we've fallen away. That's how wide his mercy is. Now, that's the essence of this text, Isaiah chapter 35, 1 to 10. And let me give you a short little backstory on it because during this time of Isaiah's ministry, Israel needed help in an intense way. They were in a serious problem. There was a national crisis. The Assyrians, who were brutal and ruthless and unyielding, were trying to conquer the world, and they were having great success, and they were moving through the area. And not only were they just winning battles and taking cities, they were destroying whole cultures like ISIS does when it goes into a town or was, was doing, and they would just destroy everything. They would take the religious artifacts and the sacred sites and they just obliterate them because they had no respect for that. Well, that's what the Assyrians were doing. They were just uh, obliterating whole cultures. And the 10 northern tribes of Israel had already been taken away by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrians start to set their sights on the two lower tribes, the tribes of Judah. And that really wouldn't have been much of a cause for concern if Judah had been trusting in the Lord, would it? If they had been walking with the Lord, they had been obedient, they had been dependent, they had been calling on the name of the Lord because God defends his children against their enemies so if they had really been on fire for the Lord and walking with the Lord the Assyrians would have been nothing they would have been a little speck that that God just went like that just flicked away but Judah wasn't doing that they weren't following the Lord and Isaiah is given this assignment to come preach the people to come warn the people before he even starts, as he gets ready to, to take this assignment, the Lord says to him, by the way, Isaiah, the people are never going to listen to what you have to say. 
They're not going to listen to a word. They're not going to care. They're going to ignore you, just like they've ignored me for years. And, and, and nothing's going to happen. You're going to preach. You're going to warn. And there's going to be absolutely no response. But even in the middle of all those indictments that Isaiah is going to present to the people, even in the middle of the spiritual resistance of the leadership and the rebellion of the people, even in advance of all the destruction that's going to take place 120 years down the road when Babylon actually comes through and takes Judah in captivity and the nation's divided until 1968. Even in the middle of all that, this passage, Isaiah 35, the Lord says, I'm promising you restoration. I'm promising you that I'm going to bring you back. Judgment's coming. Punishment's coming. It's what you deserve. It's inevitable. But, but I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. You may be destroyed, and you will be, because that's the consequence of this. But I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to help you, and I'm going to restore you. Now, the placement of this passage uh, is, is not in any way accidental. In fact, if you look back at chapters 33 and 34, and I know you can't read them right now, but if you look back at those chapters, those are a, a strong rebuke. God is sending through Isaiah a rebuke of what the people are doing, and he's giving a picture of his future judgment for their sin. But, but then in this text, chapter 35, which you're going to read in just a second, God gives a beautiful picture of his presence. And there's a spiritual principle that I want us to get right at the outset this morning that, that will drive this study. It'll be the foundation for our study. Spiritual principle is this. Once the Lord is present, and once the Lord starts to pour out his grace, everything changes. When the Lord comes near and the Lord starts to shed his grace abroad, when he starts to pour out his love and his mercy, which is abundant, and he, as we sang, is, is uh, not stingy with it. He's not holding back. He wants to pour it out. He wants to dump it all over us, his love and his mercy and his grace. And when he comes present and starts to pour out his grace, everything changes. I want us to stop for a minute and really take that truth in. Because God's mercy is so abundant. And when we experience that, when, when we go through the, the understanding of God's mercy, when he pours it out on our lives, then, then there is fruitfulness. Situations begin to change. Lives are healed. Relationships are restored. Those who are struggling are now made strong. And there's joy and there's gladness and there's confidence and there's security. And it's all because of the presence of God. If you don't have those things that I just described this morning, I would be very, um, be very sure, not as a judgment, but just as an observation, if you don't have peace, confidence, security, hope, your relationships are fractured and, and your situation's horrible and, and everything's a mess, I would be very certain, because I've lived through it, that you're not close to the Lord. That's not a criticism. It's not a judgment. I don't have a right to judge you. I don't know your heart. But I've been through it. 
And I know the times when I've gotten away from the Lord, the times even when I've wandered a little bit, there's just a little bit of indifference, a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of, I just don't feel like it right now. That's when things get confusing. That's when things get haywire. That's when things don't make sense. And relationships get tense, and and situations seem worse than they are, and there's a lack of joy and a lack of contentment and a lack of peace. Now, your situation this morning may be bad, But some of you need to hear that. We all need to hear it. But some of you need to hear it more than others. Because right now, you're floundering. And you're discouraged. And it seems like the Lord is far off and not answering. And restoration, refreshing, rejoicing, that's not the picture right now. Isaiah had to feel that in some way. How easy would it have been for him as the prophet of Judah to to not feel weary and not feel discouraged? Not only was his heart now burdened, and you if you read through the book of Isaiah, it's a heavy book. Like it's not it's not Philippians. It's not um, you know, the Psalms where we're like, oh, praise the Lord. No, book of Isaiah, book of Jeremiah are heavy. Like it's not light reading. And Isaiah is burdened in his heart, and he's got this work of the Lord, and he's got this assignment from the Lord, and he knows going into it that his work, his ministry, is going to be fruitless. He's got this powerful message from the Lord, and absolutely nobody cares about it. I mean, that would be some kind of demoralizing, right? It's one thing, you know, as a pastor, I've preached to large crowds, I've preached to tiny crowds. It doesn't matter the size of the crowd if there's a response. I've preached to thousands, and there's just dullness. No movement whatsoever. We had Thursday night, we had smaller crowd, Oh, we responded, right? The Lord moved. I'd much rather preach to a crowd where there's response and I see the light bulbs go on and there's growth and there's passion and there's excitement and people are coming to the altar. I'd much rather do that than preach to a stadium of 100,000 people where nobody cares. So what did it feel like for Isaiah? Well, Isaiah goes out and he preaches And not only are they not going to listen, not only do they not care, but not one person is going to repent. And to top it all off, he can see the destruction that's coming. There's nothing he can do to stop it. The Lord's told him, this is going to happen. He's telling the people it's going to happen. And the people still say, I don't care. But look, here's the power of knowing and trusting the Lord. And that even in the worst times, the Lord encourages his people. And he gives us a vision of his ultimate victory. There really should not be a believer who has experienced the the sufficient and transformative work of Jesus Christ to redeem us and to cleanse us. There's not one believer who at that point should live in despair and depression and defeat. Now, that is not, please forgive me, that is not a critical judgment. That is just the truth. Because Jesus gives us complete victory. If he does not give us victory, then he is not the Savior. He is not the Lord. Let's turn off the lights and go home. 
Either he is completely victorious, either the cross is empty and the tomb is empty and he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us, giving us his Holy Spirit to empower and strengthen us. Either he defeated sin and death and there is no more bondage. He's exonerated us. He's cleansed us. He's transformed us. He's renewed our mind. He's, he's indwelled us. He's guarding us and he empowers us. Either he is or he isn't. There is zero middle ground. So as a believer, I trusted Jesus Christ in 1974. As a believer, I either walk in victory or I'm not really a believer and I don't walk in victory. The Bible doesn't give us latitude. It doesn't give us a middle, well, let me try to figure it out. No, are you saved or not? Are you victorious or not? Does the Holy Spirit control your life or not? There is no middle. None. So even in despair, even when we're discouraged, and listen, I've been discouraged this week, I've been down this week, but I have to keep coming back to this passage because the grace and sufficiency of God is sweet. And he says, I give you victory. And even if you feel no victory in your current circumstance, you can always come back to the cross. You can always come back to the fact that the tomb is empty, that I have won victory forever. And knowing that, look at what he says to his people. Look at verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now he turns it in its personal. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with an anxious heart, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, verse 8, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him that walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come from joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They'll find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now notice the imagery of this text because the Holy Spirit establishes a, a clear contrasting metaphor between Judah's current situation and what the Lord has planned. And it's fascinating because if you take the first eight verses in four little sets, okay? So verses one and two, look at the imagery now because every word's important, every image is important. None, none of this is accidental. So verses one and two, he talks about the wilderness and the desert, 
Okay, that symbolizes in scripture spiritual lostness. It, it symbolizes wandering. It symbolizes the hopelessness of their current and future circumstances. They were in the desert. They were out in the wilderness. There was not a lot of hope and they were not seeking God. Verses three and four, he talks about their lack of strength. Look at the words that are used here. Exhausted and feeble and anxious and fearful. So, so those words were a diagnosis by the Holy Spirit of spiritual weakness. So they're, they're lost, they're hopeless, they're weak. Verses 5 and 6, he talks about their disabilities. That's a not-so-subtle reference to their spiritual inadequacy and inability. And then in verses 7 and 8, he talks about their lack of water and their thirst, which is an indication that they're spiritually dry. Now, the Lord looks at this and he says, you're lost, you're hopeless, you you are lacking in strength, you're weak, you have no water, you're spiritually dry, Uh, everything is wrong at this point. And justifiably, the Lord could say, oh well, You're stuck with yourself. You made this choice. Everything indicates that everything is wrong. And and I don't have to do anything. See, we become so accustomed to the grace of God that we think, well, God has to show me grace. No, God doesn't have to do anything. He's holy and he's just. And he can look at man's sin and go, enough, I'm done. You're all going to hell. But that's how wonderful the grace of God is, that we don't think that way, right? Well, of course God's going to show me grace. He doesn't have to. Yeah, but he's loving. Yeah, he is. Isn't it great? Isn't it great that his grace is so wide that, that we know that confidently? So there's no repentance. There, there's no return of the Lord, even when God sends Isaiah And it would seem that this is a futile, if you just read verses 1 to 8, this is a futile situation. There there doesn't seem to be any hope. But how many know that God's gracious? How many know that God's not just going to leave them like that? I have no doubt. I can stand before you without an ounce of doubt and tell you that God is gracious. And I can tell you that because I've experienced it tens of thousands of times. But we have to guard ourselves against taking that for granted. Because he's expressed his love and his mercy so generously and so often that we can take it for granted. And we can kind of shrug it off and then say, well, of course, he's got to keep being gracious. He told me he would. So you know what, I slip a little bit, whatever, you know. And I know we're not thinking that callously, but that's how it comes across. Of course God will forgive me. I'll just go back and, and, and apologize at the end of the day. I'll, I'll confess my sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive his sins, cleanse me of all unrighteousness, so great, you know. Get through another day, muddle through, kind of my situation's tough, you know. I, I need to just, I need to just, do this because it'll it'll make me feel a little bit better and and I know it's short term and know it's not right but but God's gracious God's gracious God's gracious that's a very dangerous mindset and if you want to see a stark example of how that plays out this week study first chronicles 26 and see what happened to Uzziah 
Uzziah was blessed by God, and he took God's mercy for granted. And I'm telling you, the end was not pretty. But let's focus on what's positive here. Because the text shows how abundant God's grace is. Even as Judah finds itself in the wilderness, spiritually and physically, the Lord makes promises to them. The Lord assures them of restoration and refreshing. And I want you to hear that this morning if you're in the wilderness. If you are out there and it's dry and you're desperate and you don't know what to do next, would you please hear this morning that God is willing to restore and refresh you? And look at how he says he's going to do this. He says, the wilderness and desert will be glad again. Wilderness is a miserable, especially in Israel, it's a miserable, barren, emotionally and physically taxing place. But it has a spiritual purpose of refining and testing us. If you're in the wilderness right now, every great man and woman of God that is in the Bible literally spent time in the wilderness because the wilderness is there to refine and test and shape us. So if God has you in a wilderness right now, don't cross your arms and shake your fist defiantly at God and say, why are you allowing this? James says the trying of our faith works patience and let patience have its perfect work so that you might become complete. So if you're in a wilderness right now, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Because I know, you tell me in James, that this is designed to refine me so I'll become more complete. And Lord, what more could I want than to be complete? What more would I want than to be like Christ? So if I'm in the wilderness, that's for a purpose. But I've got to trust you. And I've got to know, verse 1, that you will make me glad again. Then he says, the wilderness will rejoice and it will blossom. What's the next word? Profusely. What's barren and dry and lifeless, spiritually speaking here, the Lord will then turn into a place of fruitfulness. And when God gets involved, his blessings are abundant. Not just, hey, I'll, I'll toss roads a little bit here just to kind of string them along. And I'll give them a little fruit, a little blessing there, and just kind of help them a little bit, and kind of toy with them. Do you do that with your kids? I think I'll, I think I'll kind of toy with Matthew, just, just kind of see if he'll, if he'll like me. So I'll give him a little gift, then I'll take a little gift away, then I'll kind of mess with him. I would no sooner do that with my kids than cut off my right arm. We bless, we rejoice, we restore. When there's repentance, yeah, I forgive you. I don't remember what Jacob did when he was seven. I'm sure there were times when I was ticked off and angry. You did the wrong thing. I'm sorry, Dad. Okay, well, I'm still angry. I don't remember one thing he did when he was seven that was wrong. That's what grace does. That's why God says, I don't remember your sins and iniquities anymore. I'm not holding a record now. Well, Paul Rhodes, you're saved and you're redeemed by Jesus Christ and, you, and you're washed clean. But you know what? In 1984, I got a list here. That wouldn't be merciful. God says, I'll bring fruitfulness. I'll bless you profusely. Then he says, look at verse 2. 
It'll shout with joy. This is kind of an anthropomorphic picture here of, of what Jesus said at, at the, uh, the ascent into Jerusalem. He said, listen, if nobody's here to praise me, the rocks will cry out. The Bible says here in verse 2 that the desert and the wilderness will blossom profusely and it will rejoice with rejoicing and the shout of joy. He's not talking about people. He's talking about the desert crying out. It's going to be restored. And even though right now, Israel, Judah, you're in sand and rocks and death, metaphorically speaking, the joy of Carmel and Sharon and Lebanon, which were known for areas with fresh water and lush green and kind of a respite from the dryness, he says, listen, down the road, you're going to enjoy Carmel and Sharon and Lebanon. Now, why would the Lord do such a thing? We've got to ask that of the task. When the people aren't trusting, they're not walking with him, they're rebellious, they're facing judgment, they're about to be destroyed, the nation's going to be scattered. Why would God say, I'm going to do this down the road? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 2. Because it will prove the glory and majesty of the Lord to everybody. It'll prove the glory and the majesty of the Lord. How would it look if all of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ were the most miserable, joyless, defeated persons who were walking around? What would it say about the result of our faith if there was no victory and no strength? And yet a lot of people who say they know Christ actually live that way. And if that's the evidence we're going to give to the world of the power and sufficiency of God, then we are completely failing. Absolutely nobody will believe that. But if we're living in victory and confidence and joy and contentment, and when we're worn down and oppressed and opposed and there are tough decisions and we're in trial and we're in the wilderness, if during all that time we still walk through it and say, I am full of faith. And I am full of joy and I'm going to trust my Lord because he tells me this is to shape me. And he tells me that down the road the desert's going to blossom and there's going to be water and I'm going to experience his restoration. But you know what? I, I may be in difficulty, but the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy of the Lord is my strength and I'm going to keep pushing forward. And he tells me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind and to be a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, not an easy word. But you know what? Every day, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice myself to you. And 1 Timothy 4.12, I'm going to be an example of believers in love and truth and faith and purity. And I'm going to fill my heart and mind with only what is pure and holy. That's how I'm going to be. And life stinks right now. And I can't get through it, and I don't know the answers, and I'm frustrated, and I'm opposed, and the devil's hitting me day after day after day. But you know what? I'm not going to live that way. Because my God is able. So look at the Lord's message in verse 3. And I pray, oh, it's my prayer this morning, that this will refresh your spirit. This will overwhelm you with new joy and renewed confidence because this is a personal message for you. This is a personal message from God's spirit to your spirit. And some of you really need to hear it this morning. Verse 3, encourage the exhausted. How many need some encouragement this morning? If you're worn down, you're drained, you're strung out, 
You're trying to stand for your convictions and everybody at your work hates you and, and hates when you talk about the Lord. God says, do your work as unto me and don't be weary in well-doing. Don't be weary in well-doing because in due time you'll reap if you don't grow weary. Just keep standing firm. Encourage the exhausted. Second, he says, strengthen the feeble. Feeble doesn't mean pathetic there. It means those who are stumbling, those who are being made weak, whether it's by opposition or by trial. But remember his promise. When I am weak, tell me the next part. He is strong. So when we're wrestling with doubt, he says, remember my past provision. Remember my present help. Remember my future promises. I want to know, I want you to know that I am a very present help in time of trouble. So if you're in trouble right now, you're in the wilderness, you're under trial, you don't have answers, I'm there. I'm your very present help. I'm not just standing off to the side going, boy, I hope Rhodes gets through it. See what he does here. When you're in trouble, I'll come. I'm right there. Like my kids when they were young and they would cry in the middle of the night, granted, bait, okay, who has to go? Because we're both exhausted. Who's going to get it? But there's nothing like walking into the room and the child standing in the crib doing this. And you pick up that little warm body and you hold it and you comfort it. Listen, that, that's what we're called to do. Why do you think we raise our hands? I need help. I need help, Lord. Come on, I need, I need your help. And God doesn't just sit and listen to our cries and go, boy, I hope they cry it out. I hope they'll get tired at some point. No, when we cry. That's what this is talking about here. He says, I'll come near you. Strengthen the feeble. Verse 4, if you have an anxious heart, take courage in him. Don't let any fear grip you. Just lay it at his gracious feet. And then his message shifts, verse 4, from what we should do to what he will do. Look at it. He will come with a vengeance. If you're concerned this morning about the state of the world, or you've been through an unfair, unjust situation where you got hurt because of, of something that was completely unjust, or, or you've been wounded by somebody, let me tell you this morning, God is your defense. He will protect you. He will reassure you that he is victorious. The Becks are a living example of that. I'll protect you. I know your heart. I know you've done what's right. I'll take care of it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Not, not take it into your own hands like some vigilante, some Christian vigilante. Oh, I'm, I'm going to get back at them. No, that's, that's not faith. He says in the midst of this, look back at the text, I will, I will save you. I'll guard you against destruction. I've personally experienced this so many times where I was going to get caught up in a bad situation that I had nothing to do with, but I was getting into the middle of it, and God says, nope, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to rescue you. Then he says, I love verses 5 and 6, I'm the healer. No problem's too big. No debilitation is too severe, whether it's physical or emotional or relational. I, I, I will bring full restoration. 
I proved that through Jesus Christ. I proved eternal restoration. So, so now, and Jesus comes and he reinforces this, right? When you read verses 5 and 6, it's like a summary of what Jesus did. The blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, the deaf are going to hear. 75% of the miracles recorded in the Gospels, Jesus heals. Now why? Because if you look back thousands of years to Isaiah chapter 35, God says, this is what I'm going to do. And then Jesus comes, God in flesh, and he does exactly that. Well, what does that prove? It proves God's word's reliable. Proves God keeps his word. Because when the Lord's present and he pours out his grace, we said it before, everything changes. Now, let's draw it to conclusion. Notice in the next part, the last part, verses 7 to 10, that he brings refreshing. This is a powerful section because remember, the imagery in verses 1 and 2 is physical and spiritual dryness and the barrenness of the desert. But look at what he says starting in verse 7. Actually, it starts in the end of verse 6. He says, the waters are going to break forth in the wilderness and form streams in what is dry and where the land is scorched. And, and I thought, as I studied that, the times when you've been burned. Anybody ever been burned? Don't raise your hand because I know everybody will. Ever been burned in a relationship? Ever been burned in a job where you go, wait a second, that's not right. Nope, you're done. Or maybe... You're just burned out. Maybe you're just weary. Look at what he says. He says, where the land is scorched, where the land's burned, my grace and my presence will form a pool where you can be restored. I don't know about you, but it was hot yesterday. I was looking for a pool. I was out working in the yard. It was like, what, you know, 80, but it felt like 400. I'm like, I love Florida. I don't think I could ever move there because it's more than 80. But, you know, if somebody had put a nice, clean swimming pool right there in front of me, I might have gone in it. Maybe you're scorched today, and you need that pool of restoration. He says, when you're thirsty, I'll bring springs of cool water to satisfy your soul. Now, this only happens through the Lord. The Lord is the only one who can spiritually transform what is parched and lifeless into a place of revitalization. So it really doesn't matter what your problem is this morning, and I'm not minimizing it. It doesn't matter what your problem is. Instead of gasping for thirst, instead of chasing mirages, go to the place of restoration. Go to the place of refreshing. Come into the presence of the Lord. And then look at one more gift in verse 8. He says, I'll provide the highway of holiness. This is the faithful leading of the Lord. And there are so many characteristics in this section that we don't have time to deal with it. But just look at a couple real quick. First of all, just take each word. Notice that it's a highway. It's a highway. What does that mean? It means that you and I aren't called to wander aimlessly on our own trying to figure out what's best. How much of our frustration in life is me sitting down, my life, me sitting down trying to develop a plan, 
trying to figure out, Lord, uh, not even Lord, Paul, what should you do next? What's the right answer? Let's do pros and cons. You ever done pros and cons? So the pros and the cons. We're not praying. Just, just here's the positives, here's the negatives. What's the best logical decision? God says, I don't want you to do that. I have a path of life that I want you to walk on. It's a highway that I'm going to lead you down. Second, it's a highway of holiness. That means he's there because if something is holy, the Lord's over it. If something's unholy, the Lord's absent from it. So I'm going to put you on a path. It's the path of life. It's the path of holiness, which means I'm there. Third, it's not for the spiritually unclean. It is for those who are redeemed and ransomed. Aren't you glad this morning you're redeemed from sin and ransomed by the blood of Christ? Oh, you're redeemed. You're ransomed. This road is for you. And remember how you got there. It's not by your own effort. It's by the grace of God. So it's a highway, it's a path of life, it's a highway of holiness, it's for the redeemed. Fourth, it's safe. Why does he mention a lion and a beast? There's no lion there, there's no beast there. Instantly as I studied that, the Holy Spirit says, what is the devil described as? The lion who walks around seeking whom he may devour. What is the Antichrist going to be? The Bible says Revelation is going to be a beast. Oh, it jumps right off the page. There's no lion there. The devil's not going to get you. He's not going to devour you. He's not going to destroy you because it's my path. It's the path of life. And there's no beast to destroy you. It's just me. And then he says, fifth. Oh, we need to say amen about this. It's a place of complete satisfaction. There's gladness and there's joy. And I love that phrase at the end of verse 10. Sorrow and sighing fade away because when we come close to the Lord listen now we're done there is contentment and there's confidence but when we wander away from the Lord there is disconcerted discontentment it is that simple there's a path it's a highway a little side road It's a highway of holiness, and I'm there, and it's for my people, and nobody's going to touch them, and when you're on it, there's joy and contentment. Now, one last thing. Remember, this is told to Judah, not when they're thriving. It's told to Judah when they're rebellious and about to get devastated with judgment. But this is the mercy of God. Judah, you're going to go through some difficulty. It's of your own making. But on the other side, I got you. You're going to be restored and refreshed and revitalized. And the victory that I've already won is going to be yours. It is time for you and I to walk in that victory because he has provided it for those who are redeemed and ransomed.